Hello, and welcome to Seafood Matters Podcast, the voice of the UK seafood industry. I'm your host, Jim Cowie. Today, I'm going to welcome Dr. Richard Newton. Uh, Richard, hi. Can you tell us how you got where you are today? Sure. Um, I've always enjoyed fishing, first of all. So I had, from an early age, I was interested in uh, fish and um where they come from, their life histories, all of that sort of stuff. And um, I thought um, where I was going to go and what I was going to do with my life. And I decided I wanted to work with fish. And then I started the degree in Stirling um, on aquaculture. And I worked through that. I thought what I was going to do was start up my own fish farm and grow large trout for people to catch because that was my passion. But obviously when you do your degree, you're head gets turned and you go down other avenues and I started working more in development and sustainability and I did the master's course and then I worked in industry for a bit and then finding my PhD which was looking at how to make uh, the aquaculture industry more sustainable um, throughout its supply chains and value chains. So that's where I've gone and that's where I am today. And how did you, did you, you've obviously to get a doctorate, you've done a lot of studying. And... Yeah, so um, my PhD was in processing byproducts, actually. So um, I realised um, when I was working in the industry um, that, first of all, there was some mortality waste, so some dead fish from the farms, which weren't being used for anything they tend to just get dumped and then at the processing side of things um i saw that a lot of the processing byproducts weren't being utilized very well and that can be up to 50 percent of the live weight of the fish and if that's being dumped or not being used very strategically then you're losing a big chunk of the sustainable uh, production of that fish so maximizing the edible yield and maximizing efficient uh strategies for using those byproducts is key to improving the overall sustainability of the aquaculture industry. And when you say the yield, is that, is that a, a yield from processing or? Yes. So if you talk about, um, let's talk about a salmon, um, which is the largest, um, the, the most produced fish within the UK and by, um, through aquaculture, um, when it goes to a processor, first of all, it's gutted. So you've got that, that those guts, which um, could be used for something, and then it's usually processed into fillets, which get to the supermarket. And that's only about uh, 50 to 60%, depending on the cut of the fillet. So the, yeah. the rest of the fish is byproduct heads, frames, which are the skeletons, the fins, all these various trimmings, um, which are left over at the end. So trying to find a good use for all of those different parts of the fish, directing them to different uses strategically, can much improve the overall sustainability of salmon production, which is what we want. And, and is, that, is that happening with the frames and heads? and Increasingly it is, yes. Um, there's been a little bit of what we'd call push and pull on the industry. So... Um, in the first instances, um, there were land ta- uh, landfill taxes introduced, which made it really expensive to just to dump any waste. So that made processors have to try and find 
ways to be able to sell its byproducts onto other industries. And then there's been a bit of pull in that we have a shortage in protein, a shortage in food supplies. So it's important to add value to, to those byproducts and, and that's providing the pull of those byproducts into, into, into other industries. That's really interesting. That I could tell you a little bit more about where the, the different bits are going, if you like. Um, so um, uh, in the past, um, a, lot, a lot of the byproducts were just mixed, um, mixed byproducts, which used to get um, ground up and then turned into either marine ingredient for uh, other livestock or just go straight into to pet foods. Um, but the processes have now found that they can add more value by identifying direct human consumption options for these different byproducts. So now a lot of the salmon heads are actually frozen into a block and then exported to um, the Far East, seen commonly in Vietnam and parts of China. Um, salmon heads for sale in the local supermarkets and other markets, and they fetch a higher price on some of their local fish because those Asians um, value the heads much more highly than we do. They consider the heads to be the best part of the fish. Also, um, the frames going off to Eastern Europe. A lot of the um, processing technologies improved so they can start extracting the flesh from the frames and those get turned into things like the party foods that we see in the supermarkets. The, and we um, mashed up smoked salmon that's in swirls with cream cheese and those sort of things. So all of these different parts of the fish are now being um, sent to what we'd call value addition. I'll tell you a funny story about that. Uh, I was of the when I had the restaurant, the seafood restaurant, Captain's Galley in Scrubster, I had some salmon and I filleted it and I had the heads and bones aside. And I know from experience with other people that it's a real delicacy in the Philippines. And there's some Philippine, quite a few Philippine oh, crew on our Scottish fishing boats. And one was in the harbour that day and a really good friend of mine. So I called him up and I says, Peter, I've got some salmon heads and bones. And I know the, I says, you've got two or three Philippine lads on board. And I says, they'll really, they, are you okay if I take them over for them. Of course, salmon, the word, is a taboo in Scotland. We old superstitions. And he says, don't you take that anywhere. He wouldn't even use a name. Don't take that anywhere near my boat. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of superstitions in the fishing industry. It's really got the, the most superstitions of... Uh, any industry I've ever come across. There was one when I was in um, in Thailand. Actually, there were Filipinos who I was with, and they said um, when we were consuming tilapia, locally grown fish, that the, um, don't flip the fish over to get the flesh off the bone. You, you eat the flesh off one side, and then you remove the bone from the fish and then eat the flesh underneath the bone. You don't flip the fish over to take the flesh off the bone because that's bad luck for the, the fishermen who caught the fish, and it might capsize their boat. 
I thought I'd heard all the superstitions. I thought I'd heard all the superstitions, but uh, not a new one. Uh, we could move on, uh, Richard. Uh, making fish part of a more sustainable food future. Where do you see? Yeah, um, so moving on, kind of carrying on from the other um, the other points we were discussing. Fish is already um, quite a low impacting um, animal protein. If you compare it to so the other animals which are grown for food um, in and more intensive aquaculture, and indeed in, in extensive. Um, agriculture as well then fish compares quite well generally in terms of um, how much feed is required to feed the animal fish is a really good converter of feed to um, live body mass Um, and you can generally get a a larger amount of flesh from a fish than you can from a terrestrial animal because the um, bone mass within a fish is is a lot lower. So they are quite efficient in terms of how um, they're produced and how they can be processed and consumed. But I think there's um, a long way to go with that. I think um, certainly the, the feed is a big bottleneck for aquaculture production as it is for any livestock production. So the efficiency of feed production and feed delivery can be improved and the processing of fish can be improved a lot as well. A lot of the work I'm trying to look at is um, how fish is consumed, how seafood's consumed, and whether we can improve that situation. Um, if you think about how fish is presented in the supermarket, it's um, a few species, and it's all presented as generally as fillets or whole fish, whereas if you look at how any other animal that we consume, the, the the pork, the chicken, the beef. There's so many product forms to that, and it makes it more attractive to the consumer. Um, when we were talking about the edible yields before, we talked about how you use the bones and things like that. In the past, people knew what to do with this. If you had a fish that had consumed the flesh and all of the bones of the animal might be made to make a stock or a soup or something like that, and I think we're losing that ability as we go forward. People don't have time to, to do these uh, things with the leftovers of food so they want convenience and the seafood industry has to move with the times as well as the other sort of food um animal food proteins that we have the pork the chicken the beef and start presenting that product in a way which is attractive to consumers they know what to do with and then people start eating more fish and it become a bigger part of the weekly menu i think and also, well, hello impact on the carbon footprint as well. Yeah, generally, um, fishing, even though the um, stocks have taken a bit of a hit in, in the past um, and we've required more fishing effort to be able to catch the same amount of fish, um, it's still quite efficient way of um, producing um, protein for people. Um, the, especially like the pelagic fish, we talk about the herrings and the mackerels and things like that, which are used with kind of purse sane um, fishing technologies, very efficient in terms of fuel consumption. So it's the fuel intensity 
really we talk about how much fuel you need on a fishing boat to go and catch that fish. And if that yeah. um, fuel is quite low, then the carbon footprint is going to be low. So for those species, yeah. it performs quite well. And similarly, the, the aquaculture species perform well because they require less feed. Most of the carbon footprint for producing most animals is bound up in the feed, how much feed ingredients you need. If you need to uh, take soy from Brazil or you need to grow wheat in Ukraine or other parts of Europe, anything, any of these feed ingredients take a lot of energy for um First of all, growing them, the fertilizer, the um, fuel you need to um, plow the fields and then harvest the crop. And then that has to be processed somewhere and it has to be transported. So all of that fuel use and energy use that goes into the feed often contributes by far the the majority of the carbon footprint to, to what we're eating. And so it's a, it's a global footprint with all these commodities coming from all over the world and contributing to what we eat locally. Yeah. No, the one the the thing that uh, I know f- with from the fishing industry, sea fish industry, just now one of the bones of contention with the fishermen is that with quota management they're tightening species certain species and uh, and and of course then it means that there's they're using more energy to avoid (laughs) species rather than catch it yeah so um one of the bones of contentions have always been that fishermen say that they're catching the same amount of fish as they always have done um and what we've seen really is that the stocks have been declining but fishing technology has improved so we've got what's called technology creep so things like sonar better fishing gears better fishing boats all of these things make it easier to catch fish so um they will say they they're catching just as many fish but it doesn't mean that the stocks aren't being depleted um but then at the same time, I think there's been a lot of effort towards uh, managing those stocks, and and most of the ones that we see in Europe, I think, are, are a lot better managed, and uh, some are in recovery. So there's there's a lot of different voices going on at the same time. I'm, I'm not really a fisheries expert, so I think I leave it yep. there on that one. Yeah, no, 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 no. I'm not pressing you. It's just uh, I think it sometimes there's it's polit- politics can then to play very much so in fishing, and uh, and of course, as I said, it's the same amount of fuel a vessel's burning, and if there's one species he's trying to avoid, and there's another species, but it's got a less market value, mm-hmm. it it all screws up the equation. Yeah, sure, and um, we see a lot of mixed fisheries going on some some aren't so targeted and, and obviously then there's going to be sustainability issues with um how you avoid certain fish which uh, um where the stocks are in decline or whatever and, and certain fishing practices which um, may be um say less discriminatory so yeah there, there's there's a lot of issues going on and there are 
the, the fisheries um, scientists versus the fishermen versus the politicians and trying to strike that balance, I, I think, is, re- is very difficult for people. Yeah. If we could move on, if you have if you and you know, uh, there, for example, the Danish, uh, they're almost industrial proportions, 80 odd thousand ton of sand deals. And I often think the principle, if that wasn't being caught for use on land, we feed, animal feed and stuff it would make more sense for it to be available for our our fish and it, that might help the condition of our fish and also help the stocks sure um the, the sand eel fisheries really old fishery predates um certainly the growth in aquaculture that we've seen and i heard when i was doing my uh, degree 20 years or so ago that my lecturer then said that the sand hill previously been caught to power um, Danish um, power stations, for, um, Danish power stations for their electricity supply because there's so much of it and there wasn't really a good use for it. So if we don't use it in animal feeds, it doesn't necessarily mean that the fish are going to stay in the water. So we have to you know, think about good fishery management and the best use of that supply make sure that we're not taking too much of that supply out of the water there was a paper that said leave a third for the birds or something like that so um that plays to the theory around kind of uh, food webs and ecosystems how much of that um, resource you can leave in the sea without impacting on different ecosystems whether it's the fish species within the water or whether it's seabirds or any other um, animal that which relies on, on that ecosystem. Um, from an aquaculture perspective, I would say that use of marine ingredients, particularly um, sort of low trophic species such as sand eel, is quite efficient as long as we don't take too much out of, of the water, as I've been saying. Um, it converts that very efficiently into body mass for aquaculture whereas if it's left in the sea um the um the efficiency of allowing wild fish to to feed on on that resource um is probably not as efficient as if we would use it in in aquaculture so there's a balance to be had there usually when we talk about trophic levels we see um a ratio of one to ten in terms of carbon transfer so if a predator at that um, sand eel, one-tenth of it would go to the predator. Whereas in aquaculture, we see that that efficiency is much greater because we can control the environment that the fish are grown within. So you get a much better efficiency efficiency of conversion. It's more going towards somewhere between a fifth and a third of the carbon yeah. gets transferred and the, also the nitrogen within the protein. So in those terms, you can consider aquaculture to be more efficient it's just in terms of how well managed that fishery is and whether we're leaving enough within the sea to protect those ecosystems which are there and the biodiversity which relies on that resource yeah i know that uh, on, on a fish side we have a this our the cycle this 
the in this Roundower area, north of Scotland, and that North Sea and West Coast, f- fish are in row and uh, from the earlier months of the year to January, February, they're starting to spawn around March and April, uh, and there's an old fishwife's tale in this area it used to be never eat a fish until it's had a drink of the May water. And it was really, they had spawned and it was, spring was coming, the water was warming, food was moving and f- fish started feeding again. And by May into June, when they were catching fish, their bellies would be absolutely cramped, full of sandals. Yeah, I, I think there's something to be said for that. Definitely targeting the, the fishing seasons around the life cycle of the animal is key to um, preserving biodiversity. Uh, we see it within the freshwater fisheries as well. You know, there's a certain season for catching trout and salmon and pike and anything else and trying to uh, make sure those fish are left well alone during the spawning season so that you've got the higher level of recruitment for the next year. Um, fish is coming along. Yeah. Where did you get that comment? Leave well alone. That's, that's my mother and father always used to <laughs> leave well alone. <laughs> I don't know, Jim. <laughs> it's probably, uh, probably from my parents <laughs> as well. <laughs> that's great. Well, thank you. That's really interesting. If we go f- forward from that, uh, obviously, from the way you're talking, I was going to ask you about the about the future importance of aquaculture in the UK. It's obviously got it's got huge importance. Yeah, obviously, aquaculture is going to be really important going forward. If we look at the fisheries, then they're probably at the limit of exploitation. We can't get any more fish out of the sea. Although we could perhaps improve the edible yield that we're getting from those fish, but. In terms of the fish that uh, we like to eat in the UK, the cod and the haddock and one or two other species, then we probably can't take anything more from our waters. So then we're either limited to importing more fish from elsewhere or uh, increasing the volume that we get from aquaculture. Um, So we can possibly increase the the amount of the fish that we're already producing through aquaculture, but also should be looking towards um, increasing the number of species that we eat from aquaculture as well. Um, So shellfish is a prime candidate because we already have quite a big shellfish industry within the UK. We produce a lot of mussels and also oysters, but don't consume anywhere close to the amount we produce. So improving the popularity of shellfish is quite close to my heart because they're extremely environmentally sustainable they don't have any feed inputs at all they're they're filter feeders so they just um, grow within shallow bays and just consume the uh, plankton that's in the water and and grow and they can be extremely sustainable source of of protein and very healthy too they have uh, lots of good nutritional content in terms of protein healthy fats, such as omega-3 fatty acids, higher mineral contents, micronutrients, which are good for our health generally. There's also other fin fish species that we could be looking at as well, which um, are lower trophic level, considered fairly benign to grow, to grow them. The largest um, 
production of any aquaculture species in the world is um, a species of carp, which are very popular in China, but we don't consume them here and often wonder why these species aren't more, more popular and what we can do to make them more popular because they're quite easy to grow and potentially very nutritious. But I know there's a lot of issues around people's perceptions and how those fish taste and how they can be used and all of these sort of things which we were talking about in terms of product form and all of those sort of things earlier. So all these kind of issues around more efficient consumption as well as production, I think are very close to my heart in terms of where my research is going and how we can have a more sustainable diet. Yeah. The, I often, from a, with my restaurant hat on, I always felt over the time I was in the, with the restaurant, I thought one of the biggest success stories in that time was the improvement in mussels farming. They're absolutely fantastic quality. Yeah, they're great. I think um, the UK has a fantastic environment for it, especially Scotland. Um, the way um, we've got quite large areas of very pristine water and you know, we have good levels of um, phytoplankton and we have just excellent um, prospects for, for growing mussels within Scotland, but it's just not very popular and there should be more work in how to incorporate these excellent um, products, animals into our diets and be able to consume more. Um, I think putting them into a product form where people can eat them more easily is, is one step, but also the taste and how it's presented in different meals, I think maybe it's a barrier for some people. The look of it and colour it, the taste, the texture, all of these sort of things, we need to work harder to make it more um, acceptable for people. Yeah. And of course, they tick every box as far as nutritional value is concerned. Absolutely. Um, they're um, high protein. Um, the fats which are within them are mostly uh, omega-3 fatty acids and other um, other fats which are considered to be highly nutritious for people, good for the brain, good for the heart. Um, so all of that, plus the micronutrients, which you don't see a lot in some of the, especially the terrestrial proteins which are available, um, things like zinc and the calcium, um, selenium, all of these kind of micronutrients which are in there as kind of trace elements which are really good for our health. Um, so certainly we should be eating more mussels and I'm keen to find out ways in which we can do that and encourage people to eat more of them. So that's part of my research going forward. I have a, actually a BSc project that I'm supervising at the moment where we're trying to see if we can incorporate mussels into beef burgers. So like you substitute a small amount okay. of muscle meat into a beef burger and see how acceptable that is to people. And there's a, there's some, there's some, there's quite a few people doing some really nice products with mussels now, smoking them and things yeah. like that, and they're absolutely fantastic. I, I often feel that kind of these things we're preaching to the converted, though you know, people that are already 
love seafood and love consuming seafood will readily consume a smoked mussel. Great, I'd, I'd love to consume smoked mussels, but if you speak to some of my friends and neighbours, they're not going to go near them unless there's a complete change in how they're presented and how you can't change the taste, but you can put them into different things and in small amounts and, and come up with recipes which have mussels within them and present them in those ways. And then perhaps people can will consume more and have small steps towards getting people to change their diets. Because at the moment we have a very ingrained um, unhealthy diet with large portions of uh, the populace. Um, yeah, fast food, convenience food, ready meals, things like that, highly processed. And we need to change that to for our health and our sustainable living. Definitely. My wife, is, uh, she doesn't like mussels, but she loves smoked mussels. <laughs> Right. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we have quite a limited diet here, and um, I think trying to find ways to uh, get people to improve and vary their diet is uh, really important. There have been lots and lots of initiatives, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of movement unless it's in kind of quite niche parts of society. People, I say, preaching to the converted, the people that already want to eat healthy, already want to eat um, nutritious, sustainable food. They're quite a small portion of the, the population. Although it's growing slowly, the, the majority of the population look at taste and price as their main drivers. So yeah. trying to, we have to produce the sustainable, nutritious food, which is also affordable and tasty for those people. Yeah. Well, mussels, I would have thought, take that. They're not. They're not. They're not in the expensive bracket. No, they're not. Well, they're not. They're not that expensive compared to some of the other seafood options which are available. Certainly, things like the the salmon and uh, cod and things like that, which are quite expensive. So, yeah, I'm interested in encouraging their consumption through different product forms that we could yeah. investigate. Most of the mussels we see Scottish mussels anyway. They're presented to them as shell-on. They're still in their shells and vacuum packs, maybe some butter. And that's yeah. a big barrier for a lot of people. So trying to work with the industry to present seafood in such a way that um, it's more attractive for people to buy and to give to their families as well. A lot of people won't buy seafood because their kids are not going to eat it and everyone wants to eat the same meal at dinner table. So it's got to be something that everyone enjoys. Yeah. You brushed on it earlier with the zinc. When you look at the oysters, I mean, you you look at the, the zinc content and min, the essential minerals in the various foods and you come to oysters and it just goes off the Richter scale. Yeah, absolutely. Um, shellfish are, are, are great for, for all of these micronutrients. We need to eat more. So the mussels, the oysters, that's maybe another step <laughs> too far for some people, especially raw, raw oysters. I think um, not a lot of people are going to be 
them eating those if they're already not keen on seafood. I I love them, but I know a lot of people um, will struggle with them. But there's a lot of ways of presenting oysters as well. They don't always have to be raw in a half shell. They can be cooked in certain ways and yeah. incorporated into different meals. My work in Asia has really opened my eyes to how seafood can be presented and things like um, Thai oyster omelettes. Uh, they're some of the most amazing so food I've ever had has been the way um, Thais cook seafood. It's, it's delicious. So we're quite limited here in the way we, we present it. So yeah. we, need to, we need to broaden our horizons a little bit, I think. Hey, I know that uh, there was a lovely couple, uh, Angela and Tommy Mackay, they opened the Kaila Tongue Oysters a number of years ago. They sold it uh, now, but uh, she used to tell me that in, in the Kaila, was ideal conditions and the water displacement was fantastic because they had two massive tides every day and uh, they obviously had to take water samples and constantly and they never lost production they were I think is it double A the grade the, the water quality and they were, so, I mean, it was fantastic because uh, obviously with the clean seas around S- Scotland, eh, they never, ever lost their production. Absolutely. And we've got some of the best waters in the world, I think, for producing um, oysters and shellfish generally. I had um, a Chinese delegation come over here some years ago and when we were... Um, taking them around visiting different aquaculture facilities we took them for uh, lunch in famous oyster bar on the west coast i don't know if i'm now allowed to mention the names um yeah and, yeah it's okay um yeah so in lock fine oyster bar there and um we got them a seafood platter with raw oysters and they'd never had raw oysters before because although they're one of the largest oyster producers in the world, in China, um, everything has to be cooked because their water quality is not good enough. They'd they okay, they yeah. be risking all sorts of toxins, so oysters being a filter feeder, they take everything out of the environment. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, they, they suck up all of those toxins which are within the Chinese waters. And they they were amazed that we could have these raw oysters and thought they were delicious. So... We have the opportunity not just for our own domestic market, but international markets as well for selling our pristine products. I've noticed with Americans in a restaurant and when we've been there on holiday, that would be the first question going into a seafood restaurant in America. We're, we're what's a, what, a, a, about the water. Bef- rather, before there's a question about the oysters, it would be about the water. Mm-hmm. And it would yeah. be on the menu or on a board or that. So there's obviously similar problems here with certain water. Yeah, so absolutely. And all of the other work I've been doing in... Um, around Asia as well, um, you see how the seafood is marketed differently 
their own domestic seafood compared to the European seafood, and particularly places like Scotland and Ireland. And when they go in and market the seafood there, it's more about provenance than quality because we're already associated with pristine quality. So what they like when we're selling seafood to China or other parts of Asia is the story, where it's come from, the history, the the people that produce it, the tradition, these sort of things. And this is what really kind of hits hits the spot with, with those consumers. Yeah. Uh, going on from that, uh, Richard, what do you, do you see any opportunities to broaden aquaculture and to include other species, maybe white species that are wild just now? Yeah, um, there are a lot of opportunities. There, there are some key targets uh, for aquaculture that we would like to be able to produce. Um, we have what's called closing the loop on the species. That means we can are we able to close the life cycle in terms of production? And the big bottleneck there is the breeding and producing the um, young fish or shellfish. Um, so fish are a lot different from land animals in the terms that you produce a lot from a, um, one fish. You have a, a very large number of very, very small eggs which are spawned. Mm-hmm. And that means that when they hatch, they can be quite delicate. And um, so we see with certain species, because the eggs and the larvae of the of those are so small, we get a lot of uh, um, mortality in the early stages. It's very difficult to push them through. So there's species like tuna, bluefin tuna, particularly. It's a very high-value species. The loop hasn't been closed on that properly. There's also eels, which are um, very popular and critically threatened because the numbers are so low. Now, um, the loop hasn't been closed on those. They breed in the Sargasso Sea at depths, really thousands of metres. And trying to reproduce that in captivity is very difficult. So there's those ones which are the targets. But there's also fish that are uh, not so difficult to produce but not so popular in the market. So the things like perch, um, being worked on on a project at the moment with some Irish colleagues um, trying to produce perch sustainably through aquaculture and open up a market for those because they can be very tasty. I've them myself in Sweden, they're, they're very nice fish. And then there's um, things like the carps as well, which are popular in China, which we could perhaps produce in the UK and try and exploit markets for those fish as well. So, yeah, there's um, quite a lot of opportunities, I think, for new species going forward. We're not, it's not helped with the UK because it's a renowned, very conservative. I mean, I know my time in the fishing industry dealing with in fish. You were cod in place in England and haddock and lemon sold in Scotland, and that was it. Yeah, so those species as well for aquaculture have been targets too, and they um, have some of the same issues. Uh, Cod um, was trialled 
for a few years. I actually worked at um, one of the first cod hatcheries on the west coast of Scotland down Macrohanish for a bit. Um, it's difficult to produce an aquaculture. The, the eggs for a cod uh, a millimetre or less in size and the larvae which come out are tiny. They have to be fed on plankton at first. The live feeds, rotifers and Artemia, these kind of plankton species that we find. So you have to culture that plankton as well as culture the, the fish itself. And they grow at different rates quite early on because some accept that feed better. So you get a lot of relatively large animals compared to some which are slower. So they get cannibalism and things like that. So yeah. there's, you have to constantly try and separate the larger fish from the smaller fish and when i say the larger fish from smaller fish these are still in the first few weeks after hatching so some of the most like three or four millimeters long and the other ones maybe one millimeter long you have to try and separate out these kind of larger ones from the smaller ones so it's what we call grading otherwise there's going to be cannibalism and mortality if you don't um get on top of the mortality that can lead to disease in the tank and things like that so um, it's very, very difficult to produce cod at the moment. Um, Norwegians are, are still persevering it and making it viable, but we struggled in Scotland to make it a viable business. The costs were so high with uh, producing it. It couldn't compete with uh, wild capture, even though those stocks were quite heavily exploited and the prices were quite high for wild cod the agriculture still couldn't compete with it because of the challenges in, in producing them so in the future probably um there's all, all loads of work that continues on these species so in the future maybe then we'll see more agriculture cod and haddock and other species on the market yeah it's was it am I right in thinking that uh, when the Norwegians or some of the were doing it, it was more cod talked about cod ranching. Yes, yeah, so um, that's um, the concept where you produce a lot of juveniles and then release them into the wild, so you don't have all the costs of trying to uh, carry on um, culturing them to to large sizes. So you can just invest in producing lots and lots of uh, very young fish and then releasing them in the sea and then hoping that um, lots of them are going to survive and then the fishing industry will catch them. We do that with salmon a lot as well. The advantage of doing salmon, of course, is that salmon generally return to the same river where they were spawned. So you can produce um, a large number of salmon hatchlings at that river and then release them and then you hope that they're going to come back to the same place and then you can harvest them. But um, a few a few places trial this, but then, of course, you, you do get high mortality in the wild. So you have to just hope that you what you're producing is, is going to make an impact on those wild catches when they return or when you're out in a fishing boat in the sea. Yeah. It's obvious from listening to you, Richard, is that really interesting, but it tells me that much and a lot of clever minds are going into it. Nature still has a big hand. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it does. Uh, the agriculture industry, um, although we control the environments reasonably well, 
um, for a lot of them is very um, subject to the elements. You can think about that, whether it's on land or at sea, that the salmon's produced in net pens around the coast. Also things like sea bass and sea bream, net pens around the coastline are subject to sometimes very wild storm events and that can lead to damage to the infrastructure for those farms and then those fish can escape. Um, there's also things like um, plankton blooms which can occur, which are toxic to the fish as well. So there are a lot of wild elements. Um, people are trying to work out ways to have um, at least more of the production in land-based facilities. So even with marine fish such as salmon, some of them can now be produced in, um, in very large tanks on land where the water's recirculated around and treated. Um, and that's expensive. There's a lot of energy involved. Um, and also there are potentially welfare issues with that because they're in enclosed space all the time on land rather than in the sea and having the seawater going through the cages. But then in other ways, there's um, positive welfare issues that those salmon aren't exposed to things like sea lice and other disease challenges that they might experience in the wild, things like the toxic blooms, even jellyfish as well as small jellyfish that can get into the cages and get into the gills yeah. of the fish, all these sort of things. So there are a lot of trade-offs with this and trying to produce fish on, on land, um, particularly marine fish. So, yeah, we'll see how it goes as we move forward. So I think um, it's hard to tell because of all those tr um, trade-offs and so many variables involved. We'll wait and see. The markets are obviously volatile as well. There's all these different things. So yeah. the, the energy price is going through the roof. So, yeah. We'll, we'll see what happens. There, I remember the guy, uh, the Hollywood farm. I can't remember one of, down in one of the islands in the south west. Gia, 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 telling me that it was very easy, to, or it was okay to take them to about an inch long, and then from about say two or three inches long to enormous, but that little bit in between was really difficult. Yeah, I think that depends on the species because um, you have certain periods in their life stage where they can transition. So it's like different life stanzas, you'd call it. So um, their body morphology changes and things like that. So those different times in different fishes' life cycles can be tricky. So it depends on the species. I can't say I'm a massive expert on halibut. There's only a couple of farms um, in the UK. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I would say for any species, you're going to get challenges at different parts of the life cycle. For example, in the salmon industry, it's the, um, the um, early stages are conducted in freshwater. They hatch in freshwater but most of their growth is in the sea. So you've got that stage where they have to go from freshwater to the sea. In the wild, they would hang about in the estuaries as they kind of um, transition their, their gill structures and things like this change. And um, to do that in, in captivity, that's quite difficult. You have to 
try and see when they start changing within the fresh water and you have to have quite a quick transition from fresh water to sea. We can't have a freshwater stage, an estuarine stage and a marine stage. They go directly from freshwater to to sea. So yeah, for, for any fish, there are challenges at different parts of the cycle, depending on the species. Do the sex change the same as the wild, the farmed? That depends on the species as well. We have um, in tilapia, they do, for sure. And um, people manipulate the gender because certain fish grow at different rates. So for tilapia, we tend to want all males because those males grow more quickly. It's um, related to the amount of energy that's required to grow gonads and produce eggs and things like that. So um, certainly for tilapia, we're trying to produce mostly male progeny, if not all male progeny. And often for trout, it's the other way around. It's all females. So, yeah, it, it, it depends on what we're trying to do. But um, generally within the life cycles we have within um, within captivity, the production cycle, we don't see a lot of um, the fish actually changing their sex, their gender throughout that production cycle. Yeah. They're turbot. Is that, there's been some attempts at that. Is that been farmed? That's commercialised in um, Spain and Portugal particularly. There's quite a few turbot farms there and yeah. it's, it's a growing industry and it's um, also a target species um, for, for the EU to try and improve the, the production rates. The higher value species as well, which makes it easier. Yeah. And it's also in an area where they consume a lot more variety of seafood yeah. and a lot more of it. Portugal and Spain you know, Eat twice yeah. as much as we do, at least. I was fascinated when we were we were family in Australia, and when we've been visiting them, even restaurant menus would have on their the menu. It I thought it was really fantastic. A farmed, or, you know, the different species on the menu, and it'd be in brackets, wild or farmed. Mm-hmm. And and it's almost like they're frightened to see it in this country because it's still almost taboo. And yeah, I, I I think we have to get away from that. Yeah, um, it annoys me quite. A lot. I think the press is quite skewed against uh, farmed fish. Um, there's a very different attitude in the UK to what you see elsewhere, um, and. It's, it's difficult to see why. I think the salmon fishing lobby has a lot to do with that because they see that the farmed fish as being um, quite detrimental to them. So obviously there's a lot of powerful players within the salmon fishing lobby, quite a lot of rich people um, with a lot of power can put a lot of influence into in, that narrative against uh, farmed fish. Um, there seems to be, to me, a lot of conflation between different issues and different species without a lot of evidence going on. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, 
it's a tricky one for us working within agriculture and academia. We try and put a, a balanced voice on things as, as academics. We try and present both sides of any argument um, and be inclusive in the narrative we're, we're telling, but we come up with a very negative perception and narrative from the press that we're, we're fighting. So that's... Um, somewhat frustrating for us and um, as we were talking about earlier if we're going to grow our seafood consumption it's going to be through through aquaculture um, so we need to be more positive about it generally and see the way forward through it, for it and it's the only kind of product where the, the, the farmed product is seen so negatively. You wouldn't talk about having a, a wild cow or a wild pig or chicken so much. So why, why shouldn't fish be farmed? It's, it's yeah. um, very strange for us working in the industry that there has this perception that farmed fish is unsustainable or, or whatever. Of course, it, it's... Um, it's the scale, you know, there's unsustainable fish production, there's sustainable fish production, there's unsustainable beef production, there's more sustainable beef production, any species, there's going to be like a range of how how it's produced in different countries and some practice is going to be better than others and the, the narrative has to start being more balanced towards how we perceive aquaculture in this country, I think. Well... From my point of view, I would say, obviously, I've spent all my life in the wild uh, seafood industry, but I've also travelled a lot lot around some of the more remote islands, like the North Isles of Orkney and that. And it's when you see how important it is to the local infrastructure and people who had... Uh, guys I know who are fishermen, and then maybe their boat. There's less boats now. They went to the offshore. They went offshore to the oil. That's cut back now. They're they're on the fish farms, mm-hmm. and uh, so it's been keeping uh, communities, uh, remote communities, alive. And because otherwise, schools would close, shops. You know, so it's really important to absolutely. Rem- yeah, I, I agree with you totally. And we see um, talking to the industry that they often have to nurture the community relationships quite a lot um, to first of all to be accepted there, and then um, to um, to work with communities sustainably. And they, they do put a lot of investment into kind of local sponsorship of schools and. Um, local sports teams and things like that. So you see um, quite a close relationship usually between the aquaculture production and, and the, the local communities in these rural areas. And, um, yeah, you, you go to Norway or somewhere like that, which is also a very large aquaculture industry, you see that even more so. They invest in training for people to work on aquaculture farms so you have government sponsored training schemes you have educational facilities that anyone can drop into and learn about how fish is produced through aquaculture there is also tourism aquaculture tourism people who are going around norway to see the fantastic scenery that they might also get um, a, 
a boat which takes them out to fish farms and teaches them about how fish produce in farms and there's a bit of that in Scotland but it's it's quite small compared to what's going in Norway so um, the, the industry is much more ingrained into the psyche I think of people people there and much more accepted and valued yeah yeah I think maybe it would be accepted that in the early days when they were it was a case of get get into the f- as far up a sea loch as you can because it was less it was less a damage to the cages and things and now they're out right out in the in the height of the tide and and I know the some of the places I mentioned the, the there's no such a thing as chemicals used for for sea lice or anything like that because it's taken care of by nature yeah um I think that that is the case that there's um two schools of, of thought right with the salmon is um are we going to go on land in those systems I was talking about earlier? Should we produce stuff in, in tanks with water that's recycled or should we go further out into the more exposed water? So they both have their trade-offs there. Obviously, if it's in more exposed water, then there is a lot more risk um, to being damaged by the elements, storm events and things like that. And um, losing the fish and losing the whole infrastructure for the farm versus producing it on land with a lot more um, electricity and things like that. So we'll, we'll wait and see what happens with that. I, I think there'll be um, a bit of both going on because there's a lot of money being invested into both of these different approaches. But uh, regarding the, the challenges, sea lice is obviously... The, now the biggest one we've got in the past there are other diseases and they've been solved through vaccination so there's vaccinations for most of the major diseases which were a problem in the past so you don't see a lot of antibiotic use at all really because those diseases are handled but the sea lice is very tricky because it's a crustacean parasite it's like copepod um, that latches onto the fish so you can't vaccinate against it at the moment people are trying to vaccinate against it but with limited success the other approach has been through using cleaner fish and things like that um but then when you introduce another species to take care of this biological control they've got the welfare of that species to think of as well um feeding and closing the cycle on the on the wrasse which are used as the cleaner fish so yeah there's um a lot of challenges still, but a, a lot of work going into to solving those. There's a lot of the what were creel fishermen eh, catching crab and lobster now are, are on ras. Right. Okay. Catching ras for 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 the fish farms. So that's uh, ras as a um, bait for the crabs and lobsters you're talking about. No, for the fish farms. All right, so the catching wrasse. Yeah. Okay, all right. Uh, yeah, I, I think um, that practice has been reduced now because they're worried about the impacts on the local wrasse populations. And there's a lot of work now in culturing wrasse for, um, for use in, in fish farms. 
So they have to close the cycle and produce the eggs and produce the juvenile wrasse and then um, give them okay. nutrition until they're big enough to go out into the cages to control the sea lice. Um, and there's been a lot of work done on that in Norway and in Scotland. Um, and it's mixed success. I think um, it has been partially successful, but there's still a lot of challenges around it because what do you do? What do the rats do when there's no sea lice left? And they go hungry and they become aggressive and even attack the salmon. Sometimes the salmon attack the rats. You know, so there's all these welfare okay. issues that you start introducing as you put a new species in. Uh, the concepts kind of sound in, um, in kind of the, the ideas and the objectives behind it. There's always these unforeseen challenges that you get that crop wow. up and um, people are trying to solve those going forwards. I think um, one of the big um, movements in the industry has been to produce more of the smaller um, size fish on land. So in the past, when we used to produce the par and the smolts to go out to sea, we'd grow them up to between 60 and 100 grams and we'd go to sea. And at that stage, they're very susceptible and could get a high mortality from various region, reasons, and sea lice is one of those. Now people are growing the younger stages up to 400 grams or maybe even larger, close to a kilogram on land in these recirculating farms where they can control all of the um, environment within those tanks very easily. And so when they go to sea at between 400 grams and more up to a kilogram, then they're much more robust and not so susceptible to the sea lice and you have a shorter cycle in the sea because it takes far less time to grow them up to the harvest weight. So there's less opportunity for those sea lice to come in as well. So that's yeah. been quite a game changer, I think, within the industry to do that. Yeah. Well, it's like any industry. They're learning from mistakes and getting better and more efficient as you go on. Yeah, I think so. We, people forget that. Um, certainly in Europe... Um, Aquaculture is a very young industry. Elsewhere in the world, it's been going on for millennia, in fact. But um, for, for us, it's a young industry, and the salmon industry has only been going for about 40 years, a little bit more. So in that time, we've obviously learned a lot around how to grow the fish um, more sustainably from all of these different angles, not just the environment, but economically and from welfare and governance and all of these different um, factors which contribute to sustainability of producing a, an animal in the farmed environment. Um, there's been an awful lot of um, research and improvement that's, that's happened in that time. Yeah, that takes you on to go on to one of the things I was going to ask you, but that was uh, explain the aquaculture Will continue to depend more on land than sea. That puzzles me a wee bit. Yes, so um, this was a paper that um, my Chinese colleague led, and we were a little bit frustrated at the time by the amount of research which went into what we call mariculture. That's aquaculture in the sea, we call it the kind of mariculture, and compared to what was occurring for freshwater aquaculture. 
and this was from a global perspective. We're also we were seeing like this narrative that um, mariculture was going to be the, the future of food production and we, because uh, the the land is overexploited and we need to move more into the sea. And people were talking about producing lots more salmon and other marine species to feed the world. And we thought, well, yeah, okay, it's it's a good kind of noble initiative but actually salmon aquaculture is tiny in in global perspectives um the most produced fish in the world are carp seven seven out of the top 10 aquaculture species in the world are carps so that's grass carps silver carps big carps big head carps sorry um common carps they're, they're the ones that people culture mainly in asia and that's around 25 million tons of carp species produced in the world compared to salmon is about you know three or four million at, at the most so wow. it's quite small in, in terms yeah. of like global aquaculture production so all those carp species are producing fresh water in ponds in areas close to large rivers like the Yangtze in China and um, will continue to grow. That's where we've seen the largest growth in aquaculture over the last um, 30, 40 years fueled this, what we call the blue revolution, aquaculture growth at 8% and very little to do with salmon or sea bass or anything else. That's the first thing. And secondly, it's the feed. As I was talking about earlier, most of the footprint of producing um, an animal is in the feed. So although we were producing this fish in the sea most of its feed is actually coming from the land although there's talk about fish meal and fish oil in salmon feed that only makes up about 20 percent of the feed these days it's been reduced a lot from the early days most of the feed that's used in salmon are now things like um, uh, legumes like soybean and fava bean and um, we have wheat gluten and all these other land-based proteins which are going into the feed as well as rapeseed oil and palm oil so you produce more in the sea you're still relying on a large land footprint to produce that feed so aquaculture will always depend more on the land than it does on the sea in those terms and that was what we were trying to get across that um, just because you start producing something in the sea it doesn't automatically become sustainable it has this global footprint and supply chain that supports it. And people need to remember that as they're sort of pumping all this money into mariculture and ignoring the freshwater aquaculture that has vastly more production anyway. Yeah. It's really interesting. Uh, and how the two can coexist. I mean, obviously everything coexists and and works works so why not well, we'd like to see sorry Jim. sorry i was just going to say that uh, when you're talking about the tonnages and uh, it's, it's it's still small uh, the salmon uh, compared to carp and that but going back to what i said about the remote communities it's a big it's 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 a big importance there absolutely um 
a lot of my work is from kind of a global perspective and although salmons can be considered a local local scottish item it still depends on global value chains or this you know the soybean comes from america or brazil and the, the wheat comes from somewhere in europe or somewhere um in england um you know it's um i did a bit of work um, a few years ago looking at where all the feed ingredients came from for supporting the industry and uh, it was something like 70 to 75 percent of the feed ingredients which went into salmon feed were sourced from outside of the uk um so we say it supports local industries and yes it does and that's a good reason for buying what we say locally sourced food in terms of sustainability terms you know, where it doesn't make it necessarily any more sustainable to buy it locally when the feed is coming from all over the world and you've got all of the production of that feed in those different countries and the transport of that feed coming to the UK to produce that, that locally produced fish. So people need to, to realise that, I think, from from that kind of broader global perspective. And... Going back to the kind of the freshwater thing, we would like to see a lot more investment in the freshwater production as well. At the moment, there's a, a massive imbalance towards the amount of investment that goes into mariculture versus freshwater aquaculture production. And freshwater aquaculture production is actually probably a lot easier in a lot of respects because you just need to dig a pond and... Yeah produce it there you haven't got the huge amount of infrastructure that you do with with mariculture so we think from our perspective more money was invested in freshwater aquaculture and it was grown more then that would have a significant impact on sustainable food production and talking about how it support communities and things like that throughout the world the, the fish production, particularly in China, was initially for food security reasons. Uh, going back to, uh, it's, it's, it's ancient aquaculture in China, but the big growth occurred between uh, kind of the 50s onwards. And um, it was after the large famines in China due to the revolutions that people were encouraged to have their own ponds in their own backyards and produce their own fish. And then a lot of investment went into genetics and breeding and then into feeds. And then suddenly you saw a massive growth in aquaculture in China, which underpinned their food security. Um, so it's vastly important in lots of places in the world for just producing enough animal protein for people to eat. And people also lose that sight of things when they're when they're thinking about aquaculture as being in the uk kind of a, a luxury species salmon's a luxury species but throughout the world it's it's not it's um staple food for for those people so to underpin them having enough food for their families yeah isn't the uh, i quite often hear a concern with in Southeast Asia, with with the like shrimp, prawns, that it's some of the most polluted uh, waters in the world. Is that valid? Or 
Um, in the past, maybe more so. Um, now I'd say um, it's not as valid as it was. We'd say that shrimp is now the safest it's ever been, particularly in the early days of its expansion. Um, it had similar issues to salmon. You could say that a lot of mistakes were made and um, there were unsustainable practice going on. So big issue with shrimp is uh, disease because it's a crustacean. It doesn't have an immune memory, so it can't be vaccinated. You can vaccinate it, but it doesn't make any effect beyond like a, a week or two. So they're always susceptible to disease. And the way it was produced on the coast, it was um, open to tidal flushing. So it flushed the tide through the ponds and then the water would go back out into the sea. And also a lot of the ponds were kind of connected using the same canal water that was coming in from the sea. So water would flow from one farm to another farm to another farm. And you didn't have this biosecurity. And also a lot of the crustaceans which were in the wild could also carry some of the diseases that shrimp was susceptible to. So you saw a huge prevalence in disease as they were intensifying and a lot of chemical usage. And that meant that a lot of the waters where those shrimp were being produced, a lot of the sediment was getting contaminated. And so they'd move on. So they'd abandon a site and then go to the next bit and clear another bit of mangrove and then put another site there. But that was kind of in the early days, in the 80s and the 90s. Now things have improved a lot since then. So a lot of the systems are now closed. So they don't use a lot of um, water exchange at all. The water comes in and they treat it beforehand and they have uh, sedimentation ponds and things like that for treating any water that's then flushed out. They have more management between different ponds and their neighbours to make sure there's no disease transfer. There's a lot more knowledge about diseases and how to spot the diseases. There's a lot more knowledge about environmental conditions, which can be triggers for diseases occurring things like that. So the industry's improved vastly since the um, 80s and 90s. Another thing I would say regarding contamination and safety, um, there was a system in the EU um, which was called the Rapid Alert Systems for Food and Feed. So they used to test random consignments of shrimp and anything really coming in from um, all over the world into the EU for different contaminants, that be bacterial contaminants, heavy metals, antibiotic residues, you name it, they were, they were testing for it. And um, depending on where things came from, different food commodities and the origin meant that they'd be more subject to more tests. So the shrimp coming from Southeast Asia was generally subject to more testing than other food commodities coming from other okay. places in the world. And the amount of alerts for shrimp has declined massively since the, the 90s and the two, early 2000s, where there were lots and now you hardly see any. It's, it's a tiny amount, whereas the production has still continued to increase. That's really... Oh, well, that's, that's a positive. That's good to hear. Yeah. Taking drawing to a close, I was just wondering if you could maybe put some meat around the term blue food. 
Yeah, I think that's quite a quick one, really, Jim, to be honest. I think um, really it's to stop confusion with the term seafood because um, we regard seafood as uh, aquatic food that's coming from the sea. So certain fish species and crabs and lobsters and things like that, different prawns that, of course, we've been talking about, a lot of it doesn't come from the sea. It's coming out of freshwater ponds. So by saying blue food, that becomes more all-encompassing and then we can include some of those freshwater species within that term without confusing people too much about where it's coming from. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, oh, yeah, no, it's a great term, I think. Yeah. Be, and it, seafood can, I, I, I take your point because it can be quick and a little bit confusing and, I know with Americans, seafood is almost it's it's like they class seafood would be she, what we would say shellfish, so they would talk about fish or seafood. Yeah, I think that was within uh, Britain quite a lot as well. In the past, seafood was the mussels and the prawns and things like that, whereas um, fish was separate from that. So yeah, I think you're right. So it's good to have uh, a more of a all-encompassing term for for food which comes out of the water. But um, the flip side of that, of course, is that um, seafood or blue food is very diverse. I can't remember how many uh, species my colleague said were cultured in China, but I think it was around 400 different species of fish and shellfish were currently um, grown in aquaculture in, in China. So in some respects, it's incredibly diverse compared to terrestrial production. So we shouldn't be saying farmed fish is this or farmed shellfish is, is that. You need to be kind of digging down into the diversity of production, not just the species, but how it's grown and where it's grown and all these things, because mm -hmm. it's very different. Really interesting. Well... I'll wrap it up on that, and Richard, and thank you so much for your it was really fascinating and giving us an insight into lots that the public don't know and are almost fear. So I think that was really, really helpful. Thank you. Really That's been my pleasure. It. Absolutely. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for some, a few tough questions. So keeps us on our, <laughs> keeps us on our toes. Thank you for listening to Seafood Matters Podcast. You can subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can join me on Instagram and Facebook by searching for at Seafood Matters Podcast. If you have any questions or episode suggestions, please email me at jim at seafoodmatterspodcast.com or get in touch through my website, seafoodmatterspodcast.com.